So let's read here the first nine verses of Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. So you shall make it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. This is God's word for us tonight. So chances are this is probably pretty universal in this room that if you were out somewhere and you saw a guy with a girl and you saw said guy get down on one knee, I'd I'd wager a bet that most everyone in this room pretty much knows what's coming next, right? A marriage proposal. Uh, You know what's happening. You feel the weight of the moment. You're like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. About to watch uh, a wedding proposal. And he pulls out the ring and he proposes. And I'm not going to lie, proposing to Carrie, my wife, was a pretty great experience uh, for a myriad of reasons, one of which we had never talked about marriage before we proposed, but that's a different story. Um, She did say yes, and I knew she would say yes, so it's fine. But, you know, buying the ring, possessing the ring, hiding the ring, presenting the ring, they were all pretty great moments. I enjoyed every single one of them. And, you know, in that moment when I proposed to Carrie, uh, the ring was obviously kind of the centerpiece there, but it was by no means the most important part, right? Uh, It was our love for each other and we're going to get married and for some reason have four children. Um, Didn't know that at the moment. But it's interesting, you know, the ring was not the most important thing in that moment. But Carrie couldn't take her eyes off of it, right? She just kept, look, she kept looking from ring to me, to ring to me. I wish I had somebody film it. That was a mistake. Anyway, the ring was not the most important part, but she couldn't take her eyes off it. And then throughout our engagement, and even maybe even to today, but especially in the early months of our marriage, you could catch her every now and then. Sneaking a peek, right? Like, I've got a diamond on my finger. Um, There's a ton of symbolism wrapped up in an engagement ring. We know this. Uh, And then the wedding rings themselves. We know that they're more than just nice pieces of jewelry that say we love each other. You know, when uh, in some wedding ceremonies, you'll hear after the vows, the minister will look at the bride and groom and say, do you have a token of the vows that you've just made. And in our culture, usually that is when the, the exchanging of rings happen. The ring carries these, these, the symbolism of the covenant vows of marriage. Packed with it. Believe it or not, when you get to Exodus 25, I would suggest to you, you have reached the climax of this book. That everything about this story has been building to this. But what's funny is when you read through Exodus, you like it because you're like, man, this is an action-packed book. And then you get to 25 and the whole rest of the book is instructions. Lampstands and curtains and curtain rods and gold and all these things. And that's usually where in our Bible reading plan we just, I think I'll skip to like numbers or something. Um, 
But I would suggest that what happens here, they've just been given the law. Now they're given the instructions for the tabernacle. And those two things, the law and the tabernacle, become for centuries the centerpiece of one of the world's greatest religions. Okay? There's tons of symbolism packed into what God is asking his people to do here. And so this book is beginning to draw to a close. This story, the chapter of God's story throughout all history, at this point, is now going to draw to a close. And the way that it's going to do that is going to do with these instructions of how to worship God and where to do it. And before his people's eyes, what God is going to do is give a symbol. Much like a wedding ring, packed with meaning, an elaborate, complex, simple, like a symbol, like an engagement ring, and it will display all the elements of his intentions for his people. So I want to look at two things for you tonight. Um, the picture that we're given here, and then what is the story that the picture is telling us? Okay, so what is the picture here? And again, we didn't read all seven chapters of the instructions of the tabernacle. Uh, you're welcome again. So, and again, we've had a great story to this point, but if you read from 25 forward, what you're going to get is chapter after chapter of detail after detail about curtains, about rods, about clasps, about lamp, lampstands, about tables, about altars, about basins, about ephods, these things that maybe we don't even know what they are. But I want to look at four things, okay? Four things are the big picture of the things that God instructs here. And the first one's this. If you read through the next six, seven chapters, what you'll see is that we will, you'll read, and the Lord said to Moses, and you'll read that seven different times. Seven's a pretty significant number in the Bible. And what you'll see further divided in that seven is there's six instructions of what to do with the tabernacle. And then the seventh one is about the Sabbath. So there's six instructions of doing, and then a seventh instruction of rest. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Interesting. And then, again, you'll read, as you read through about the curtains and about um, the Ark of the Covenant and what the lid is supposed to look like, you'll see this design that actually pops up over and over again. And it's the cherubim, uh, the angels on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, also pictures of them were to be woven into the curtains. The cherubim, if you remember, the first time they pop up in the Bible is at the Garden of Eden after the fall. They're placed there to keep man out after he has sinned. Okay? And so the cherubim, whenever you see the cherubim in the Bible, they always represent God's dwelling presence. Isaiah sees them when he is in the throne room of God. John in Revelation sees them when he is in the throne room of God. They always symbolize God's dwelling presence. And so they're an earthly representation of God's heavenly dwelling, just as, Garden of, as the Garden of Eden was heaven on earth. And so once again in this story, when you see the design of this temple, or of this tabernacle, which later becomes a temple... You see us being pointed back to creation again. It's not the first time that the book of Exodus has done this. Pointed us back to creation. And the reason we're being pointed back to creation is because we're being pointed back to what God has ultimately done all of this for. The whole purpose of the story of Exodus has been to return the people to what they were created for. And you know what that was? To have God in their midst. That's what they were created for. And that's what they lost when they sinned. And now God is about the business of restoring them to that. Uh, and that's what the tabernacle is going to represent. To provide what God intended. To dwell with his people. So the first thing you'll still see kind of the structure there of, of how the instructions are laid out. The six and the one. The second thing you'll see is the actual structure of the temple. I thought about actually showing y'all a picture, but I'm not techy enough. To, I didn't do it. Uh, I'm lazy. Sorry. Um, 
But here's the structure. If you read on, you'll, the, the structure is basically a rectangle. Okay? And the rectangle is made up of two squares. The first square is you walk in and it's the courtyard. And the second square is the tent itself, the tabernacle itself. Okay? And the courtyard's got um, curtains around it. And so it's one long rectangle, two squares. Okay? And if you think about it as two squares, the first square that you walk into is the courtyard. And the first thing you see when you come into the courtyard is an altar, which is already telling you something. Before you can go any further, there has to be sacrifice. Okay? And then you'll see at the center place of the second square, which is the tabernacle itself, is this room called the Holy of Holies, which is separated from everything else uh, by a curtain. It's the innermost room. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where God's presence literally dwelt inside of the tent over the cherubim over the ark of the covenant now look i'm no architect or house designer but like any good builder what you see happening in the tabernacle is there's a flow there's a flow into this structure and it tells a story one you cannot go into god's presence without first offering sacrifice and then two the further you go in the more precarious it becomes The more cut off it is, the more shielded it is God's holiness, because nothing that is unholy can behold his holiness. And so what you see that's happening here is that worship at the tabernacle is actually going to reenact the story of redemption. To worship this God, to come into his presence is to reenact redemption itself. There has to be sacrifice before you can come to his presence, leading the people out of exile back to Eden, as it were, is what this tabernacle is going to show forth as they worship at it in the years to come. The third thing, if you look at chapter 28, and I'm just getting the details out of here, out of here for y'all first. If you look at chapter 28, you'll see instructions for the priests. And what's interesting about the instructions about the priest and what they would do at the tabernacle is one thing that God says is here is what the priests need to wear. And when you read the description of what the priests are supposed to wear, they are to be decked out. And so he describes everything and everything that you're supposed to make for the priest to wear when he's running the worship at the tabernacle. And guess what materials the priest's garments are made with? The exact same materials as the tabernacle itself. Exact same. And so in a sense, and commentators comment on this, in a sense, the priests are many tabernacles. All right, we've done this before. Do you all remember what was the role of a priest? A priest was a go-between, right? He was a representative of God to the people, but he was a representative of the people to God as well. And so he's just like the tabernacle. He is where God meets man. And in this case, God meets his people through the priest. Just as a court or a judge views a plaintiff or defendant through their lawyer, right? So the priest represents the people to God and then the priest brings God's judgment or blessing back to them uh, from him. But then you think about the robes that they wore. It was ornate. It was beautiful. All these beautiful threads, these beautiful stones, all these things that they were supposed to wear also represented for us what we are supposed to look like to God. Robed in ornate beauty. And the priests represent that for us. Okay, so we've got the seven uh, instructions. We've got the physical layout of the structure itself. We've got the instructions for the priests, but all of it finally here, just to round out this picture, is that it all ends with Sabbath instructions. Say, okay, hadn't he already done this in the Ten Commandments? But he does it again. Exodus 31, verses 12 and 13. Listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, 
Catch that. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now, here's the connection. I want you to see what's happening in the tabernacle worship in a specific day of week, which has actually been designated since the creation when God rested on the seventh day. So what God is doing here is explicitly laying out for the people a holy space and a holy time. And they come together here in the worship of God, a holy space and a holy time. So tabernacle is to be this holy space, a a specific literal place on earth set apart. The one place in all the earth where the God of the entire universe would come down and physically, tangibly dwell in the midst of his people. It was a big deal. Getting that? And then the Sabbath is to be this holy time, a day set apart for holy resting in God, who he is and what he's done. Okay? And so to sum this picture up, this is what the picture is showing all of us and show what it showed the people. Is that this God is about the business of redemption, recreation, recreation, not recreation. I mean recreation too, like have fun, but recreation and restoration. Redemption, recreation, restoring us to what we were... Uh, what we were created to be and restoration that we would rest in all these things. And all of this, this holy place, this holy time would continually serve as a picture for God's people of what he was doing, why he was in their lives and what end he was trying to bring them to, to bring them into his presence. So that's the picture in a nutshell. Go read it for yourself. All right. What is the story the picture is telling us? That's the, really the thing I want to I I leave you with here tonight. What is the story that the picture is telling? What does it all mean? Well, here, what is the most obvious, most simple way of explaining it is this. That the God of all creation is determined to take up his dwelling in the world that he made. In the midst of the people that he has loved. The God of all creation is determined To make his dwelling in the world that he has made in the midst of the people that he loves. That's the story. And I would suggest to you, that's the story of the entire Bible from beginning to end. And I'll hopefully try that in a little bow by the end here. And he's going to do this in a structure, at least in the Old Testament, in a structure intended to reflect the perfect created order, all the things that God intended when he made earth, when he made man in his own image. It was indeed this tabernacle is supposed to give them a taste of heaven on earth and what he was trying to bring them back to. Now, I also don't want you to miss this. Do you all know what a tabernacle is? It is simply the Hebrew word for tent. It's a tent. OK, here's a question. Who else was living in tents? All the people, all of the people are living in tents. And so the story that this picture is telling us is that this God is the God who comes alongside. This is the God who will identify with his people, identify with their circumstances, enter into their circumstances. He will not be far off. He will not be removed. Why? Because he dwells. 
And his people are going to know that he dwells. And he doesn't just dwell, but he dwells with them. See why this became the centerpiece of their religion, by the way? Now, easy to make the connection, I think. Fast forward just a thousand years or so. The climactic, the climactic moment of history when God himself took up residence among his people in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, the man. And we read in John 1, 14, John tells us the word became flesh and the word, guess what, dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I don't know if you ever heard of this, but that word dwelt there in John in Greek, in the Greek Old Testament, that word dwelt is the same word for tabernacle. Jesus, John is telling us, Jesus literally tabernacled amongst us in flesh. And then you have Jesus in his, in his life, in his ministry, going on to claim in front of people that he was the new temple, right? The tabernacle, once they came to the promised land and established a city in Jerusalem, they built a temple and no longer needed a tent. And he said that he was the new temple. And in John chapter 2, we hear Jesus saying to people, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. There's actually people at the end of his life that used that to, to put him to death, that he claimed this, that he was going to destroy the temple And what John tells us there in John chapter 2 is that after his death, that the disciples instantly remembered that he had said that. That he was the temple that if you destroyed in three days, he would build it again. That he was speaking about his body. That he had literally tabernacled amongst us. He had templed among us. He was claiming to be the very presence of God on earth. He was claiming... To be the very point on earth where man and God connect. He's it. That's what he was saying. But here's the inexplicable part of the story. To me, at least, the story didn't stop there. You would think that would be it. That the meeting point of God is here in the flesh. You would think that's it, right? The disciples thought that was it. Even when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, the disciples are like, okay, like, is now the time? Like... Is it, is it over yet? And then he leaves and the angels are like, what are y'all waiting for? Go, please. It's funny. Read it. Acts 1. The story doesn't stop there. Because what Jesus also says in the rest of the New Testament tells us is that God has actually chosen to build us up and dwell in us as a people. You have Jesus in John 14 saying, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And you will know him because he dwells with you. And he will be in you. And then further down, Jesus in that same chapter says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and we will make our home our dwelling with him. That's a lot, right? What do we do, do with all this? Let's, let's drive it home with us. Simply put, it's this. It is God's desire. It is God's plan. It is God's purpose. It is God's heart. It is his work to be with you. 
So in a sense, like my, my proposal uh, uh, illustration at the beginning is not far off. Because it's as if God in this moment for all of history is saying to his people, look, come and be with me and live with me. And I will live with you and I will be with you. Right? And this is what he works for. This is what he shapes all of history for until the moment that he actually comes in the flesh himself. And this is what this does for us. It does, us, does for us two things. And end with these two things that it does for us. It radically changes our purpose in the here and now and our hope in the time to come. Our purpose in the here and now and our hope in the time to come. How does it do this? Well, think about it. What about our purpose here and now? If we understand that it is God's desire and purpose and his determination to be with us, that helps us understand our purpose right now. What are we supposed to do and be right now? Let me borrow from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says this, and maybe you've heard this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Paul, remember what Paul said about himself in Philippians, right? That he is the most Jewish Jew ever. Like if anybody was good at being a Jew, nobody was better than me. Paul says that in Philippians chapter 3. You have a Jew where the temple was the centerpiece of his religion saying, by the way, you are the temple of God. And so what he's saying is that our relationship with God through Jesus is so intimate that what may, whatever may be said to be true of Jesus can also be said to be true of you. Because Jesus said that he is the temple, we can know that we are also the temple. It's rather mind-blowing when you think about it, right? That we are also temples of the living God. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, it might be in a context like this, that you think at this point, this is where I'm going to tell you, so don't drink Don't smoke, don't chew, and don't date guys or girls that do, right? It's a nice little rhyme. It's a good thing to live by. Um, But that's not where I'm going, not necessarily. But I will say this, because it needs to be said and you need to hear it. I think you need to think about it. Your body is important. Your body is a good thing. You know how we know that baseline? It's because God made it. And God looked at everything he had made after he made it and he said it was good. Your body is important and your body is good. It is. Y'all, do you find it to be any coincidence? Is it just symbolism that in order to save us eternally, spiritually... How did Jesus go about that spiritual mission? It's not just a coincidence that he went about it in a physical body. Your body is important. Our bodies are important and our bodies are good. Therefore, what you do, whatever you do with your body is important. And that's why God has a few things to say about your body in this book. It's why the Apostle Paul, in building the church and encouraging the churches that he plants, continually goes back to them and says things about what they're doing with their bodies. Hey, you believed the gospel, you love Jesus, you're following Jesus, and you love each other. Be careful what you do with your bodies. 
Because God doesn't want you to have any fun. No. Because your bodies are good. And they're important. And to do whatever you want with your body or to do whatever you want with someone else's body is actually to say that you don't care about your body. And you don't care about theirs. Your body is important and your body is good. It matters and God cares and God has plenty to say about it. Your body, in a sense, and actually I'm going to read a quote here in a minute. Your body isn't yours. If you belong to Jesus, your body isn't yours. It's his because he's taken up dwelling inside of it. In you, he says. And someone else's body is not yours. So, I mean, think about this. God cares so much about your body that he put one on. That doesn't make any sense, y'all. He put one on. He lived in it. He breathed in it. He ate in it. He slept in it. He worked in it. He sweat in it. He bled in it. He suffered in it. He died in it. And guess what? He was resurrected in it. And guess what? He sits at the right hand of his father in heaven right now, still in it. Your body's important. And Jesus tells us, and the New Testament tells us, Jesus has now taken up residence in you. In your body. And it's such a true thing that Paul can say, and he means it, that you are the temple. You are. This thing that stood in ancient history as one of the most magnificent things in all of history. The temple at Jerusalem. It doesn't exist anymore. And it doesn't need to. Because there's a bunch of them in here right now. That's mind-blowing, is it not? And so Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 6, says this to make this application. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? And then he goes on to say, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How many people go to church on Sunday morning and think, I'm going to glorify God with my body today? We don't think that, do we? Maybe we should start. But I also don't want you to miss the you there um, when Paul says, do you not know? It's plural. He means all of us. So you go and read the details about the tabernacle. Just as the tabernacle is meticulously ordered to reflect the divine order, so we as his body, we together collectively as his body, are also reflecting to the world His divine order and the way that He wants things to be. And the way that the world learns and sees these things is by the way that we love one another and live with one another. Why do you think the New Testament is filled with all these one another phrases? It's because of that reason. And so all of that is saying about our purpose that God is not some up there. God is in you. When you go home tonight, when you go out tonight, God is in you, not just with you. He's in you. And he doesn't do that he, so he can keep tabs on you. Like your parents, like when you went off to college, like, hey, are you going to class? That's not why he takes up residence. He takes up residence in you because he wants to be with you. And he wants you to be with him. That informs our purpose in the here and now. But the final thing is this. The hope that we have in the time to come 
you jump forward in the Bible to Revelation, in Revelation chapter 21, we get to see how the story, the whole story of the Bible ultimately will end. And what John sees there uh, is the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, we're told. And we're given the dimensions of this city, right? It's got 12 foundation stones, and then it's got walls or gates on all sides, 12 gates. And you read the dimensions of the city there, and guess what shape it is? A perfect cube. Guess what else was a perfect cube? The Holy of Holies in the middle of the tabernacle. Guess what was also a cube by implication? The Garden of Eden. You go and read how the Garden of Eden is laid out with the rivers around it. It's a square. And then we're told about these precious stones and these metals. Guess what about the New Jerusalem? The same materials as the tabernacle. We're told that the river of life is there. And we're told that there's a tree of life. And it's trees with, uh, with leaves for the healing of the nations. But there's something interesting we're told about this city in Revelation 21. We're told explicitly that there is no temple there. If the temple is so important, why would there be no temple there? And you know why there's no temple there? We're told explicitly because God and the Lamb are the temple. Because see, there's something that the tabernacle and later the temple show us that's not true anymore. When you look at the tabernacle, when you look at the temple, there was that innermost room, the Holy of Holies, and it was divided from everything on the outside by a curtain. And only one person got to go in there one time a year, the high priest, on the Day of Atonement. And then there's something that happens when Jesus died. The Gospels tell us that the moment Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. What curtain? The one covering the Holy of Holies. It's torn in two. Why? Telling the world, telling history, that the way to God is no longer barred. Because the ultimate atonement had been made. And no one was going to keep his people separated from him anymore. That's a story. That's where the story's headed. That's what they're being told right here, right now. They didn't see it fully, but this is the story that God was pointing them to. But here's the thing about all of us, or about most of us. That most of you, even on your best days, you still feel like there's something that's barring the way. Do you not? At the end of every day, there still seems there's still something. I'm still speaking through a curtain. I'm still speaking through a veil. I'm still seeing dimly or blurrily. Is blurrily a word? I just made it up. It's good. I like doing that. Even on your best day, some of you feel like the way to God is barred. Years ago, a church in Lexington, Kentucky, their pastor uh, committed suicide. It was a very sad story. Um, and a pastor... An author named Brian Chappell was a friend of his and, and preached at his funeral. And I want you to read, you know, obviously suicide is a very sad um, event and it's a very, it, it rocks a lot of people in a lot of different ways. If you ever had a friend or loved one um, that took their own life. And so Brian Chappell wanted to address it with the, with the utmost care. And I want you to listen to what he said. He said, I know that some are going to fear if I don't shut the door to heaven for Peter for this particular sin. And if I don't shut the door to Peter for this particular sin, I may open the door for some others to consider doing what he did. 
I know that's a great danger. But the greater danger is to portray a God who does not understand human weakness. And to portray a God who draws a line beyond which his love will not go. I fear more the daily and eternal despair of belief in that God. The God that we need is the one that the scriptures promise, the one who loves you so much that he gave his son for you so that you need not fear that even your greatest failures will deny you his eternal kingdom or his heart. Now, how could somebody say that and believe it and even believe it for another person that is now dead? Starts right here. That I refuse to believe in a God who draws a line beyond which his love will not go. How do we know that that's true? Because he made it his point to show that he would do no such thing. That he was going to take up his dwelling in our midst. Take you back to Revelation 21. It's actually pretty interesting. Is that right before Revelation 21, John attends the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then the angel comes to him and says, come and I will show you the bride. I'm going to show you Jesus's bride. Now catch this. John says, I turned to see the bride. And guess what he saw? A city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. So now here's a question. When we go to heaven, are we going to live in New Jerusalem? In a sense, I would say no. No. Because the story we're being told there is that God is going to dwell in New Jerusalem. Because we are New Jerusalem. Again, Revelation 21, God himself says this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away Every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I have to ask, you at least want that to be true, right? That's the invitation for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we do long for this to be true. We long for all the pain and confusion of this life to be something of the past. We long for all the things that we know hold us back from you, displease you. We long for them to be wiped away. And what you did, you didn't give us a ladder to climb 